WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Christmas Eve by Maeve Brennan, which appeared in December of 1972. She was getting what she called nervous, and she couldn't understand it because she'd been looking forward to Christmas. She didn't know what was the matter with her. Christmas Eve was chosen by Roddy Doyle, who has published nine stories in the magazine. Doyle is the author of many novels, including The Commitments, for which he also wrote the screenplay. He joins me from Mutiny Studios in Dublin, Ireland. Hi, Roddy. Hello. So, Roddy, Maeve Brennan moved to New York from Ireland when she was a teenager in the 1930s, and for years she was much better known here than she was in Ireland, though a lot of her fiction is set there. None of her books, I think, were actually published in Ireland at the time. And where you come from, is she considered an Irish writer or an American one? Irish, very much so now. It was as if she was discovered a new writer, even though she was dead, um, in the late 90s. And uh, there was a story about her because, you know, the rumour, the, the myth was that she had died homeless on the streets of New York, that she'd become um, a bag lady. Mm-hmm. And um, there was almost as much interest in that as there was in the stories. And then people began to read the stories and realised just what extraordinary the stories they were, particularly the Dublin stories. So um, she became a new Irish writer about eight years after she actually died. And the strange thing from my point of view, is that um, Maeve was my mother's first cousin. Oh. She actually lived with us for a short while in 1973. She came back to Ireland for a while and discovered a place that was very different to the one that she wrote about. And didn't I, I don't think she liked what was then modern Ireland. But she stayed with us. And uh, so about a year after that story was published, she was living in my house in uh, Kilbarrick on the north side of Dublin. I hadn't read the story. I didn't read any of her work until um, it was rediscovered, so to speak. So did you know her as a writer then or just as a relative? I knew she was a writer and I knew she worked for The New Yorker because um, she stayed in a, in, a, in a room at the back of the house and I'd hear the typewriter, this old big manual typewriter, bouncing away presumably on a table right into the night, you know, <laughs> uh, and huge packages of books would arrive. I think she did the um, briefly noted section. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she did a lot of things at The New Yorker. She wrote a lot of talk of the towns. Um, yes, which she was famous for. Yeah, um, her byline, The Long-Winded Lady. Yeah. So the New Yorker would arrive uh, at the house as well. And at that age, I really wasn't interested in it. It was a foreign world that I didn't really want to know. I I sort of got a bit of sense later on. Being a writer wasn't your goal yet. It was, but not being that type of writer. I think at the time I saw the New Yorker as being respectable. You know, when I opened (laughs) it up and saw these ads for coats, you know, right. <laughs> made by extinct animals uh, or from extinct animals. I just thought, well, you know, I didn't even explore it properly. I just, I just thought there's nothing for me there. What I really would have liked to have been was a, a journalist for the New Musical Express interviewing Lou Reed and people like that, you know. And, and how did Brennan seem to you then? Was she sort of an eccentric older woman or? She was uh, a very small, very exotic in a way, stank of cigarettes, 
um, but held the cigarette in a way that if she had, and Bogart had stood side by side and smoked together, nobody would ever have given them up. <laughs> um, she was just elegance itself, really. There was a kind of a threadbare quality to her in a way. You could see that the sleeves of her coat were a bit frayed, but it seemed to be part of the package. It seemed to be part of her elegance in a way. She was exotic as well because um, she was divorced, yeah. you know, and I think she would have been the first divorcee uh, that ever sat in our house, you know. <laughs> it was such, you know, Maeve kind of, without any drama, talked about um, being a divorcee and uh, that was amazing, really. That was that was verging on science fictional. <laughs> and so obviously this was quite a while before her, her descent. Um, yeah, I think opinions are, are... It would appear that she... You know, she was behaving eccentrically then as well, appearing and disappearing. She actually virtually just disappeared from our house. My mother came home. She was in the hall and said, I'm going now, Ita. And uh, my mother, I think, said, oh, OK, when will you see you again? And she said, no, I'm going. And she left. And that was the last my mother uh, saw of her. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a phone call from um, a police station in Dublin saying this woman had been found a bit lost and she remembered the phone number. So my father offered to go in and collect her, but she said no. So I think she was beginning to um, lose her grasp of mm-hmm. everyday living by then. And she came back to Dublin later, I think a few years after that, but we never saw her. Uh, we mm-hmm. only found out about that later. Right. But uh, then I'd kind of, it seems a bit callous, but I'd forgotten about her existence, really. Uh, although the books were still on the shelf at home in my parents' house until this story re-emerged about her. And then felt very proud of the fact that I'd known her when I began to read the stories and quite um, when, when I began to see how good they were. Yeah. Uh, and I felt a bit stupid that I hadn't read them at the time and maybe I would have had the chance to talk to her about them. So Christmas Eve, the story that, that you're about to read is about a family of four, the Baggetts, Delia and Martin and their daughters. And Brennan wrote quite a few stories about this family. I'm wondering what makes this particular one stand out for you. It's so desperately sad and also consoling at the same time. It's one of a series of stories, as you know, about the same family. And some of them, one of them particularly, The Eldest Child, is as dark a story as I've ever read. But this one seems to, it, it, it expresses the nature of love in a way that you don't often encounter. The notion that a wordless house can be a a house that, that the, the memories of which sustain you all your life. Mm-hmm. And it struck me as being a very, very wise story. We'll talk more after the story. Now here's Roddy Doyle reading Christmas Eve by Maeve Brennan. The fireplace in the children's bedroom had to be swept out and dusted so that Father Christmas would have a place to put his feet when he came down the chimney. Lily and Margaret Baggett watched their mother, who knelt close into the grate, brushing the last few flecks of ash out of the corners. Lily was eight and Margaret was six, and the long white nightgowns they wore fell in a rumpled line to their ankles. They wore no dressing gowns, although the room was cold. They'd be getting into bed in a minute. It was a square room, the back bedroom, with faded garlanded wallpaper in blue and pink and green, and it was lighted by a single bulb that hung from the middle of the ceiling. One large window looked out onto the garden and the adjoining gardens. Mrs. Baggett had pulled the blind down all the way to the sill. She wanted the children to have their privacy, and beyond that, she wanted them to be safe. She didn't really know what she meant by safe. Respectable, maybe, or successful in some way that she had no vision of. She wanted the world for them, or else she wanted them to have the kind of place that was represented to her by lawyers and doctors and people like that. 
She wanted them to go on believing in Father Christmas, and more than that, she wanted to go on believing in Father Christmas herself. She would have liked to think that there was someone big and kind outside the house who knew about the children, someone who knew their names and their ages, and that Lily might go out into the world and make something of herself, because she was always reading. But Margaret was very defenceless and unsure of herself. Lily was maybe a bit too sure of herself, but at the same time she was very soft, very nice to people who maybe wouldn't understand that it was her nature, and that she wasn't the fool she seemed to be. Father Christmas knew that Lily was clever, always getting good marks at school. No matter where the presents came from, Father Christmas came down the chimney. Mrs Baggett was sure of that. He was probably hovering over Dublin now, seeing how the city had changed since last year. The children were all older. That was the great change. It was always the great change, every day, not just once a year. She placed her dusting brush across the paper in the scuttle and stood up. Now Father Christmas will have a place to put his feet, Lily said. He wears big red boots, Margaret whispered. Time to go to bed now, Mrs Baggett said. Come on now, into bed, both of you. Margaret is nearly asleep as it is. She had left them up long past their usual bedtime, and Margaret was drooping. Lily was as wide awake as ever. She'd be awake all night if this kept up. But it was Christmas Eve and Martin was home early from work. He was downstairs now, reading the paper and waiting to come up and say goodnight to them. Because Martin was home, the two cats and Benny, the dog, were all shut up in the kitchen. He hated to see the animals around the house, and the animals seemed to know that. They all settled themselves very comfortably around the stove the minute she told them to stay. They were all stray animals that had found their way to the house at one time or another, and they had never lost their watchfulness. They knew where their welcome was. Benny was Mrs Baggett's special pet. He was a rough-haired white terrier. Mrs Baggett had rescued him years before from a gang of small boys who were tormenting him. And since then she had seldom been out of his sight. He slept on her bed at night. Martin Baggett didn't know that. Martin had his own room at the back of the house. He generally got home from work very late, after Mrs Baggett and the children and Benny and the cats were all asleep. He didn't like to have Mrs Baggett wait up for him. She had to get up so early in the morning to get the children off to school. He thought the animals all slept in the little woodshed behind the house. Minnie, the thin black cat, belonged to Lily, but Rupert was Margaret's. Rupert was a fat orange cat who was so good-natured that he purred even the time his tail was caught in the kitchen door. Martin knew the names of the animals and sometimes he asked the children, How's Minnie? Or how's Rupert? but he liked them kept out of the house. He half believed the animals carried disease and that the children would suffer from having them around. Downstairs in the front sitting room, Martin was watching the flames in the grate. He had thrown the evening paper aside. There was nothing in it. He was thinking it was nice to be home at the time other men got home at night. Nice for once, anyway. He wouldn't want to have to get home on time every night the way other men did walking into a squalling household with the children trying to do their homework on the same table where their mother was trying to set the tea. But of course he was different from other men. He wasn't the least bit domesticated. Nobody could call him a domestic animal. How many other men in Dublin had their own room with their own books in it and their own routine going in the house? An unbreakable independent routine that was perfectly justified because it depended on his job and his job depended on it. 
Delia had her house and the children, and he had his own life, and yet they were all together. They were a united family, all right. Nobody could deny that. Delia was a very good mother. He had nothing to worry about on that score. Ordinary men might want to be lord and master in the house, always throwing their weight around, but not Martin. A bit more money would have come in handy, but you couldn't have everything. The room was decorated for Christmas. He and the children had worked all afternoon on it, with Delia running up and down from the kitchen to see how they were getting along. They had all had a great time. Even Margaret had come out of herself and made suggestions. There were swags of red and green paper chain across the ceiling, and he had put a sprig of holly behind every picture. The mistletoe was over the door, going out into the hall. At one point Delia had come hurrying up to say they must save a bit of holly to stick in the Christmas pudding, and he had caught her under the mistletoe and given her a kiss. Her skin was very soft. She looked like her old self as she put her hand up against his chest and pretended to push him away. Then the children came running over and wanted to be kissed too. First he kissed them, and then Delia kissed them. They were all bundled together for a minute, and then the children began screaming, Daddy, kiss Mummy again! Daddy, kiss Mummy again! And Delia said, Oh, I have to get back to the kitchen. All this play-acting isn't going to get my work done. Lily said, Women's work is never done. Lily was always coming out with something like that. You never knew what she'd say next. Margaret said, I want to kiss little Jesus. And she went over to the window where the creche was all set up, with imitation snow around it and on its roof. The window was quite big, a bow window that bulged out into the street. Delia had filled it with her fern collection. They were mostly maidenhair ferns, some of them very tall, and she had them arranged on a table. Sometimes Martin felt the ferns were a bit overpowering and that they darkened the room. But tonight they made a wonderful background for the creche, making it seem that the stable and the holy family and the shepherds and their animals were all enclosed and protected by a benign forest where they would always be safe and where snow could fall without making them cold. The three wise men stood outside the stable as though they were just arriving. Lily had carefully sprinkled snow on their shoulders. Some of the snow had sifted down onto the carpet where it lay glittering in the firelight. On his way home today, Martin had bought two small gold-coloured pencils for the children. Each pencil was in its own box, and the girl in the shop had wrapped the boxes in white tissue paper and tied them with red ribbon. They were out in his coat pocket in the hall now, together with a special present he had bought for Delia in the same shop, and he wanted to get them and put them on the kitchen table so that they wouldn't be forgotten. He knew Delia had the rest of the children's presents hidden in the kitchen. He'd better do it now while he was thinking about it. He went out into the hall, shutting the door quickly after him to keep the heat in the sitting room, and as he fumbled in his pocket for the pencils, he heard Delia talking to the children in the room upstairs. Her voice was low, but it was very calm and definite, as though she were explaining something to them or even laying down the law about something. He had the pencils now and he stood very still. He couldn't hear what she was saying, only her voice, and once or twice he thought he heard the children whispering to her. It was very peaceful standing there in the hall, very peaceful and comfortable, although the hall was a bit cold after the warmth of the sitting room. But he felt very comfortable, very content. All of a sudden he felt at peace with the world and with the future.
It was as though the weight of the world had fallen from his shoulders, and he hadn't known the weight of the world was on his shoulders, or even that he was worried. In a few years he would be making a bit more money, and then things would be easier. He had no desire to know what Delia was saying, or to go up there and join in. That was all between her and the children. He would only upset her if he went up there now. He would wait till she called him. It was dark in the hall, except for the faint light filtering through the glass panels in the front door from the street lamp outside. He listened to Delia's voice, so quiet and authoritative, and he had the feeling he was spying on them. Well, what if he was? He didn't often have the chance to watch them like this, in the gloaming, as it were. How big this little house was, that it could contain them all separately. He might have been a thousand miles away, for all they knew of him. They thought he was in there in the room reading the evening paper, when in fact he was a thousand miles above them, watching them and watching over them. Where would they all be if it weren't for him? Ah, but they held him to earth. He had to laugh when he thought of the might have been. He might have travelled. There was very little chance now that he would see the capitals of the world. He never knew for sure whether Delia and the children were his anchor or his burden. And at the moment he didn't much care. He had seldom felt as much at peace with himself as he did now. It would be nice to fall asleep like this, happy like this, and then wake up in the morning and find that the world was easy. He had often thought the house cramped, and imagined it held him down, but tonight he knew that he could stretch his arms up through the hall ceiling, and on up through the roof and do no damage, and that no one would reproach him. There was plenty of room. He was as free as any man, or at least as free as anybody could be in this day and age. Now he would run down to the kitchen with the pencils. Delia would be calling him any minute, and the light was switched on on the landing above, and Delia appeared at the head of the stairs and saw him. Oh, Martin, I was just coming down to get you, she said. I was just coming up, he said, and he started up the stairs two steps at a time. The closer it came to their bedtime, the more excited the children were, although they stayed very quiet. Delia was afraid they wouldn't sleep, or if they did sleep, they'd wake up in time to find herself and Martin creeping into the room with their presence. She stood by their bed, talking to them to calm them down, and she found that the sleepier they became, the more apprehensive she herself was. She was getting what she called nervous, and she couldn't understand it, because she'd been looking forward to Christmas. She didn't know what was the matter with her. She was as fearful tonight as she used to be long ago at home, where she lay in bed listening to the wind blowing around and around the house. The fear was the same in this house, exactly the same, except that this house was attached on both sides to other houses, so the wind couldn't blow around it, but only across it. But the fear was the same. She hated the wind. In the daytime she was able to keep busy, but at night as she lay alone in the dark, her mind went back and instead of going back into dreaming, like daydreaming, it went back into conjecture, and from there into confusion. Instead of rebuilding the past to her own design and making things happen as they should have happened, she was blown by the noise of the wind against bitter obstacles that she was able to avoid when the weather was steady. Words like why and when and how rose up against the dreaming that rested her, and she was forced back on herself, so that instead of rearranging things, she had to face them. The past led to the present, that was the trouble. She couldn't see any connection at all between herself as she used to be and herself as she was now, 
and she couldn't understand how, with a husband and two children in the house, she was lonely and afraid. She stood there talking to the children about what a lovely day they were all going to have tomorrow, and she was well aware that she was falling into a morbid frame of mind. And there was no excuse for her. She had nothing to worry about, not tonight anyway. There wasn't even any wind, although it had rained earlier and would probably rain again before morning. There was really nothing to worry about at the moment, except, of course, how to get Benny up out of the kitchen and into her room without Martin knowing about it. It would be terrible, awful, if Martin found out that Benny slept every night in her bed, but she couldn't leave him out in the shed in the cold. The cats always slept on the children's bed, but they'd be all right in the shed for the one night. She had a basket out there for them. They could curl up together. But Benny couldn't go out there. She'd miss him too much. She wished she could talk to Martin and explain to him that Benny was important. But she knew there was no use hoping for that. It was time now to go down and call him to come up and say goodnight to Lily and Margaret. But when she walked out on the landing, she saw him standing in the hall below. The hall was quite narrow and covered with linoleum, and it served its purpose very well, both as an entrance to the house and as a vantage point from which the house could be viewed and seen for what it was, a small, plain family place that had a compartmented look now in winter because of all the doors being closed to keep whatever heat there was inside the rooms. In the hall there was a rack with hooks on it for coats and there was an umbrella stand and a chair nobody ever sat on. Nobody ever sat on the chair and nobody ever stood long in the hall. It was a passageway, not to fame and not to fortune, but only to the common practices of family life, those practices, habits and ordinary customs that are the only true realities most of us ever know and that in some of us form a memory strong enough to give us something to hold on to to the end of our days. It is a matter of love, and whether the love finds daily, hourly expression in warm embraces and in the instinctive kind of attentiveness animals give to their young, or whether it is largely unexpressed, as it was among the Baggots, does not really matter very much in the very long run. It is the solid existence of love that gives life and strength to memory. And if in some cases childhood memories lack the soft and tender colours given by demonstrativeness, The child, grown old and in the dark, knows only that what is under his hand is a rock that will never give way. In the big bed in the back room upstairs, Lily Baggett lay sleeping beside her sister. And if they dreamed, nobody knew about it, because they never remembered their dreams in the morning. On the morning of Christmas Day, they woke very early, much earlier than usual, and it was as though the parcels piled beside their bed sent out a magic breath to bring them out of their sleep while the world was still dark. They moved very slowly at first, putting their hands down beside the bed and down at the end of the bed to feel what was there, to feel what had been left for them. They went over each parcel with their hands, getting the outline and trying to make out from the shape what was inside. Then they couldn't wait any longer, and Lily got out of bed and put on the light so that they could see what they had been given. That was Roddy Doyle, reading Christmas Eve by Maeve Brennan. The story appeared in The New Yorker in 1972 and is collected in The Springs of Affection, published in paperback by Counterpoint. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. 
There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, so Roddy, if you've read Brennan's other stories, which you have about the Baggots, um, you know that this couple lost their first child. It happens in the, the story, the eldest child that you mentioned before. Um, a boy who died when he was three days old, and you know that Delia had a kind of breakdown after his death. Does that affect the way that you read this story? Yes, I think that I see the stories together almost as a novel. They can be read individually and you don't lose anything, but when you read them together, the impact of them is very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Do you think people will will get the undercurrents of Christmas Eve without having read The Eldest Child? I think very much so, yes. For example, you've got the notion of the couple living apart. His job almost invites him to stay away from the family to an extent that he, you know, that he has his own room. And it's heartbreaking then when um, the mistletoe is over the door and they kiss, you know, and the children try to ignite it and they run across. And I can see it in my own family life, you know, and I suppose everybody can see it in their own family lives. And yet, sadly, that's the moment, you know, that's the, that's the spark between that couple. Mm-hmm. But yet at the same time, um, he sees the emotion or his emotional life as being successful. Um, just that moment, that day, mm-hmm. he sees it as being successful. So it's a terribly sad story in some ways, but it's also because, you know, you sense that they'll be doing the same thing the year after, and that is not necessarily a bad thing. As, as you've said, Brennan also didn't have a very happy home life herself. She had one marriage, which only lasted five years and mm-hmm. uh, and no children. Why why do you think she, in her writing, focused so much on domestic life? She has another series of stories about another family. Yes, Um, and they're kind of equally, they're longer stories, but they're equally powerful. Yeah. Um, Well, it's one of the mysteries. I don't really know because I think her strong, I think I've read all her stories and the strongest ones are undoubtedly the ones that are set in her childhood or that were fashioned from her childhood. And... I know it's personal taste comes into it, but the New York stories, for example, which I suppose were more uh, fed by her adult years, I don't find as um, engrossing at all. Mm -hmm. The Dublin ones are the ones that really, um, well, still floor me. And uh, but I she's not around to tell us why. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a hint of it in that last page of the story when she talks about memory and love. Mm-hmm. Her her language here is very simple, and her her sentence structure is very straightforward. It's almost it reads almost like a children's story. Yeah, uh, it does. It is very very clear, very very simple, and it allows her, I think, to shift perspective. She goes from mother to father to daughter, and swerves from one to the other. And really, you're only into the second or third sentence before she re- you realize she's done that. Yeah, but I suppose it is the language seems to be perfect for that night, if you like, Christmas Eve when um, I suppose we're all a bit kind of muddy with sentimentality on a night like that. Well, certainly, (laughs) you know, I am. More so, I think, than any other time of the year, there's a big bong goes off as if here we go again. And it's a nice thing, you know. It's a a pleasant time. The kids are excited even as they get older. And I think uh, the language allows her to swerve around as if she's holding a camera almost. Yeah. 
Mrs. Baggett has that moment where she's suddenly sensing her own agitation. She's she's thinking morbid thoughts, even though she knows she shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And that's something that comes up in, in all of the stories about her. She yes. has these moments where she slips into nervousness, and, and you sense that she could very easily cross over into something yes. much worse. Yeah, and it's a kind of, it's a polite word, nervous. She's, she uses the word nervous, and it's in inverted commas. It's her word to describe mm-hmm. uh, what we might be a little bit more open about in the in the early 21st century. And uh, there might be pills she could take or medications that would ease her or somebody she could speak to, but then she carried it herself, you know. Mm-hmm. In a previous story, The Eldest Child, uh, she loses a child, as you know, three days after the child is born, and it's as if she has to stay in bed for a few days and then get up and get on with her life. Mm-hmm. She's, and, she's transformed by that loss. Yes, When Martin indeed. looks back, or in other stories where they both look back at the early days of their courting, and she was kind of lighthearted and a different person. Yeah. Yeah, he seems to cope with the death of the child. It's as if the child didn't really exist because it died so young. And uh, uh, I know similar, a, a, a similar thing happened in my own family. And in fact, you know, it would have been a common thing all over the world. Child mortality was much more frequent, but um, it wasn't brushed aside, you know. Uh, I suppose it, it occurred in my family in the 50s, mm-hmm. by which time... Uh, it was something that could be talked about to a degree, but there was a certain amount of, well, I suppose of necessity. You know, there are children in the house. You have to get up and feed them. Life has to go on. But my mother, you know, would would talk about that child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never hidden away. So um, I suppose it was, I hate to use the word, but maybe easier to a degree. Uh, whereas this woman has to cope or not cope all by herself. There's no one... You know, a psychiatrist, psychologist, counsellor, these things didn't exist in Dublin yeah. at that time. And she has an, an oldest child, who's the daughter Lily, who's somewhat dismissive of hers. I feel mm-hmm. she's, she's intimidated by her own daughter a little. Yeah, and perhaps I, I think one of the great things, you know, the dog, for example, Benny the dog uh, is is a character in himself. And I think mm-hmm. uh, in later stories, Maeve personified dogs in, you know, some of those stories I, just, I found hard to read because they're just too Disney-esque for me, you know, <laughs> the personification of animals, although I fall for it all the time at home. We have a couple of dogs and, I'm, you know, I'm virtually, when people ask how many children I have, I'm on the verge of saying five. <laughs> In fact, I have three. <laughs> Two of them are extremely hairy, you know? but uh, uh, they shed hair all over the place. But... Um, I've lost my point now, Deborah. <laughs> I think, <laughs> but I think okay. it's, yeah, the, the, the notion of the dog is almost an investment for the future. She sees the dog will still follow her around when the kids are gone. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually, you know, a lot of us would acknowledge that that's what dogs become to a degree uh, in a house where the children are getting older. Mm-hmm. Uh, they become the they become the toddlers toddling around the place, yeah. and there is a you know you can pet the dog still uh, long after the children are six and seven inches taller than you, <laughs> and uh, sprouting hair you know so um, I think yes maybe Mrs Baggett sees in Lily her you know another grim aspect of her future that Lily who's still a little girl still believes in Santa Claus or Father Christmas in a very short space of time is going to be years before the word teenager existed but is going to, you can imagine Lily as being the you know a really hard piece of teenager dumb to cope with you know <laughs> <laughs> well, Lily's going to leave her that that's the the final yeah result. inevitably yeah, yeah. inevitably yes 
Thank you, Roddy. Thank you very much. You can read several short stories by Roddy Doyle on our website, newyorker.com. His latest novel is Paula Spencer, published by Viking. You can find 19 previous fiction podcasts at newyorker.com or in the iTunes store. Just type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 